The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed as he appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. And welcome, and thank you for being here with us. Let me pray for us as I begin. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing, would be acceptable to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospels, everyone struggles to believe. Everyone does. Especially that Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. All four Gospel writers are unanimous and entirely consistent in this, even as we see this morning. Now, the two travelers in our gospel reading from Luke this morning, in verse 21, they say, we had hoped, we had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. But as far as they know, he's not. Because in verse 24, no one has seen him. And the only two that have apparently possibly seen are these traumatized and potentially hysterical women who are telling idle tales. We didn't read this, but back up in verse 11, that's what the disciples think the, the story of the resurrection is now, an idle tale which is actually one word in Greek, leros, which is usually translated foolishness or silliness. 
And so the authors don't present believing in the resurrection as easy. In fact, they make it next to impossible, which is very good for us, helpful for us, because we live in a culture for whom the resurrection is increasingly layros or silliness. Tim Keller published an article on the Gospel Coalition website this week. It's entitled Lemonade on the Front Porch. I imagine some of you have read it. The image for him of a front porch serves as this metaphor of our culture's relationship to Christianity. He says American culture's relationship used to be one of sitting on the front porch in which it's not inside your house and, and not in the most intimate space of, of your life and your, and your relationships. It's not the living room or the dining room, but you're still the host and you're still there with them. Our culture, Keller says, used to sit on the front porch and though not fully and completely Christian, they did share so much of our general and common beliefs, like the belief in a personal God who made us in his image, the, the need of forgiveness, the reality of heaven, the reality of hell, the, the reliability and the authority of the Bible, the, uh, the, the goodness of sexual fidelity within marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, they shared these beliefs and the result was that the relationship between the two was respectful. It was valued even. And non-Christians were already prepared to hear the more specific claims of Christianity through the common beliefs of the culture. But now that has all changed. And everything is entirely different. We're now experiencing what it's like for our culture to exist and to operate not on our front porch, but out in the street, nowhere near our front porch. In fact, many Christians, many churches, they aren't on their front porch at all, inviting in in, in winsome and and, uh, kind ways, wise ways for people to come onto the porch and to have a conversation. Rather, we're like this 84-year-old man who in Kansas City uh, shot through his window and, and hit a young black man. And shot him two different times. You may know this story. You probably have heard it. The young man just mistakenly walked onto his front porch and rang the doorbell thinking that his younger siblings were there. And I wonder, is that what we're like now as Christians? Taking shots at our culture from the safe confines of our house at a distance if they come too close? Maybe. But regardless, no one's on our front porch. And the gap between our beliefs and our claims about Jesus's resurrection and our culture's belief, they've grown and they've widened. And it's now next to impossible for them to believe what is central to our faith, what we say throughout Eastertide, which we'll say even right now, Christ is risen. Leros, silliness. And so what does faith require according to Luke chapter 24? Three points this morning. First of all, an honest assessment. Recognition is arguably the main theme of this gospel passage here. In verse 16, the disciples can't recognize Jesus. But then at the end of the passage in verse 31, they do. They can recognize him. And his resurrection is no longer an idle tale, but is believed and is true. And all the action, all the engagement with Jesus comes in between these two uses of this one word. Raising the question, what do you think that our non-Christian neighbors think themselves about the resurrection? What do you think they think? The answer is probably nothing. They probably don't think about it at all. But if pressed about what they really think, it would probably be something like a mixture of their religion 101 class, their freshman year in college, and their philosophy 101 class, and then some combination also of the Da Vinci Code, that remarkable work of literature and cinema. But that's probably something along those lines. He's a moral teacher. A great man, like, like Gandhi or like Martin Luther King Jr., both who cared especially for the poor and the marginalized, and like both of those men were killed because he disrupted the status quo and offended those in power. A great man, but nothing more. 
And as the years went on, what happened was after his death, his followers began to develop higher and higher views of him. So eventually these legends and these miraculous stories got written down, collected, and became the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament and what we find there, it's not the historical, quote unquote, Jesus, but the religious Jesus whom the disciples invented and developed, Peter, the apostle Paul, and others. They're the ones that created the divine resurrected Jesus that we read of here. So it's probably something like that, if really pressed. I've told you countless times about how people respond to me after finding out that I'm a pastor. It's always a combination of several things that results. One, they always immediately apologize for the cuss word that they just said. But then, secondly, they also tell me about some distant relative who's in the ministry somewhere and ask me if I know them. Like their uncle, who's a Lutheran pastor in Minnesota. I I don't don't know, I'm sorry. Uh, Or... They immediately confess all their most egregious sins, regardless of where we are at a party or in public. And then more recently, the first thing they asked me is my opinion on LGBTQ plus issues. That's what they're most concerned about. Or number five, they will say something about how fulfilling it must be to teach about a symbol of love and a forgiveness that can do good in this world. Now, they don't oftentimes use the word symbol, but that's the idea behind what they're saying. That Jesus is a symbol. He's an idea. He's a memory and this moral example. Uh, he's, He's not alive. He's not present or active in this world or even in their lives, especially not drawing near to them or even possible to do that as we read of here. Several years ago during COVID, Andrea Botticelli sang on Easter day. Do you remember that? He sang at the Duomo of Milan, beautiful, sang in Italian and English, all these various Christian hymns, Ave Maria and Amazing Grace. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. You know what he said beforehand? He said, I believe in the power of praying together. I believe in the Christian Easter, the universal symbol of rebirth that everyone needs right now. Do you hear it? What he believes about the resurrection? It's a symbol, a universal symbol. And so it didn't happen in human history. It resides in the, the minds of people and in the, in the hearts of people as an idea or a sentiment, something that can give people strength in dark times and dark moments, much like this passage that we read of here, but, but not real, not historically true. It's beautiful. It's inspirational, but not true. A beautiful lie, an inspirational lie even, but just a myth and, and a legend like all religions, meaning, and I oftentimes say, I, I'm, and good for you good for you when they find I'm a pastor. You know what they mean? They mean good for you that that means something to you and to those people who listen to you. It's not good for me, but good for you. My question to them often, if I'm bold enough in that moment, is, is, is what you believe about the resurrection truly a historically viable and alternative explanation that's not my phrase. It's N.T. Wright from his book, The Resurrection of God. But can, what, can Jesus simply being a symbol or a sentiment actually account for Christianity exploding as it did in the ancient world and lasting for 2,000 years and all of its original followers being willing to die for their faith? Can that really account for what has happened in history? Do people die for a symbol or a sentiment? Because faith requires an honest assessment about your life, about what you think, an honest assessment about everyone after the resurrection. And everyone in the scripture is exactly where most of the people in our culture currently are. We didn't invent skepticism in the 20th century. Faith was just as impossible for them then as it is for us now. So what happened to them? What changed them? Point two, 
an undeniable loss. What is the greatest loss you've ever experienced in life? It's the greatest loss. And what did you do then, or are you turning to even now in order to cope with that loss? And I ask that because this would have been these two travelers' greatest loss. We don't, we don't know too much about them. We know one of them is named Cleopas in verse 18. It's a man's name. So one is a man. Maybe the other is a friend. Maybe it's his wife. We don't know. We do know that they're poor because they're walking. Wealthy people rode animals and they're walking. So they're poor. We also know that they're not a part of the original 12 disciples or 11 now after Judas's suicide, because that's who they go and tell in verse 33. So they're not leaders. They're not important. They're not, they're not the, the people who are leading the Jesus movement. They're just ordinary, unnamed, average, run-of-the-mill followers of Jesus or people who used to be followers of Jesus dealing with the greatest loss of their life. And it would have been the greatest loss because think about how their life had changed in the last week. Verse 13 tells us that it was that very day, meaning the day of the resurrection, So one week prior, they would have been among the crowds charging into Jerusalem, waving palms, celebrating the one that they had hoped would redeem Israel, meaning the one that they hoped would be crowned as an earthly king and lead a rebellion to cast out the Romans and to reform the religious leadership of Israel and return Israel to its glory of days gone past, the days of Solomon and David. So to make Israel great again, maybe they even had hats. Y'all, are, y'all laughed a little bit more than the first two, but maybe, <laughs> but in reality, on the end, they would have been on the inside for the first time, no longer on the outside, no longer on the margins of society and culture and power. They wouldn't have been poor anymore. They wouldn't have been unnamed anymore. They'd have been known and officials and high ranking, high class. Life would have been worth living. They would have purpose and meaning. They would have known what they were doing in this life. All of their expectations, all of their dreams were about to come true and then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, everything broke. And everything changed. Suddenly, they lost everything. Everything fell apart. Verse 21, we had hoped. You see those words? Look at those words. Because you've said those words. We had hoped that the diagnosis would be different. We had hoped the marriage was repairable. We had hoped that his unfaithfulness wasn't that deep and that dark. We had hoped her addiction wasn't that resistant. We had hoped that this pregnancy would last, that this child would have friends, that that guy would call back, that this job would finally get us out of debt, that this candidate would finally be different. We had hoped. We will all say these words. Some of the saddest words in all the scriptures, yet words that faith requires. The New York Times ran an article this past week about Japan's declining birth rate and the impact that it's having on the country as a whole, but particularly on the rural areas, because all the young people have moved away from the rural towns and small villages to the cities. And so there's not only no young people, there's no children in the villages. Playgrounds are empty and schools have closed. And one village in particular named Nagaro in southern Japan, in that village, only the elderly remain. So there's, there's no playfulness, no joyfulness, no, no vibrancy that children so often bring. And so one woman there decided to change that and began to make life-size dolls of children and to place them all around the village, especially on the playgrounds and in the school. Her name's Miss Ayano. She and her friends made 350 dolls. And now the dolls outnumber the residents 10 to one. And they've moved on to making adult dolls 
And as the article says, I'm not making this up, staging the dolls in various scenes, evoking the real people who once populated the villages. So a construction worker smoking a cigarette, a man pulling his son in a wagon, someone waiting at the bus stop. This is Nagaro, Japan. Any of y'all want to go and visit? I don't want to go and visit. That sounds so creepy, like a horror film or something like that. So, so weird and creepy and so strange, so sad. But we all, any of us, all people do the strangest things when faced with dealing with the loss of hope. So what are you doing? What do you do and turn to in the face of the loss of hope for momentary comfort, for temporary distraction? According to Luke 24, faith in Christ after the resurrection requires loss like this. It's loss like this in words that describe that type of loss that Jesus begins his public ministry. I tell you this often because it's so important. The first words out of Jesus's mouth publicly are blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are so crushed by the world that their only recourse is to look up beyond this world for the help and comfort that they now need in their life. He goes on, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and comforted when? After they've been crushed and after the mourning has said and after their spiritual, emotional and mental impoverishment. And so look at your life, think back upon your life. When has your faith been the strongest if you are a Christian? And when have you been laser focused upon seeking the things of God? When did you open the scriptures and read them like your life depended upon it? When did you not dare miss worship? When did you seek the counsel and the encouragement of other people and lay your life honestly and openly before them for their help? When did you do this? I can tell you when you did this, when you walked a road like this, Because so often faith requires loss like this to open us up to God and to open us and wake us up to the reality of the world actually is, which is a seven mile journey of confusion and doubt and hope and hurt without hope. Because often we won't stop lifting up our hearts to the things of this world until the things of this world are gone in some degree, forsaken by us or forfeited by us or taken by others. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke 17, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life in this world through the things of this world, who seeks to keep his life, preserve it, will lose it, just like these two. But whoever loses his life in this world will keep it. So have you lost what you thought was your life? If you have, good. Because it's a sign that God is at work that he is drawing near because in the midst of our greatest losses where Jesus most evidently and most often draws closest to us. So point three, a divine passive. The tense of the verbs in this passage change abruptly. Now that may sound really nerdy and really unimportant to you, but I promise it's not. It may be a little bit nerdy, but it's definitely not, un, not unimportant. It is, it is very important. It's at the heart of our passage. Notice in verse 13 that two travelers were going. So past progressive tense, which is an action that took place in the past over time, but has ended. The travelers are the subject of the action there. Then in verse 14, they were talking. Again, past progressive. Same thing in verse 15, the beginning, but at the end of verse 15, Jesus drew near. And then in verse 16, we read, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Were kept, passive voice, passive tense. Their eyes were kept by whom? By Jesus who had drawn near. 
And this is the literary device throughout the book of Luke and really all the gospels. And it's called a divine passive. It's when something is stated in the passive voice, meaning something or someone is acting upon something or someone else, but the one doing the action isn't named. It's a way that biblical authors all throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, speak about God who is the one performing the action, but don't use his name. And it's everywhere in Jesus's ministry. It's all throughout all the stories of him. And I've actually already mentioned one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Passive voice, passive tense. Comforted by whom? By God, who's not mentioned. Also in Luke chapter 13, there's this woman who is healed of a disabling spirit. She's bent over and has been bent over for 18 years so that all that she can look at is the ground beneath her. She can only look at the earth and the dirt and and not lift up her eyes to anything beyond this world. And Jesus comes to her and says, woman, you are freed from your disability. You are freed, passive voice, passive tense, are freed by whom? By God. Anytime we read this divine passive, it's always an all caps indication that God has drawn near and is at work. And it always emphasizes this, that whatever it is that is happening, whatever the action is, whatever God is doing, it's something that we can't do. It's something we cannot do. Just like Jesus says here in the verse 31, he, he opens the scripture, he breaks the bread before them and their eyes were open to seeing him, to seeing God in the flesh, God who died for them, God who was raised for them, open their eyes for them to see him by faith, who he is and all that he has done, that he is near to them. They didn't know him before. He works, he acts upon their life and then they see him there, present, changing every part of their life. And think about these disciples. They had been with Jesus possibly for years. They had heard him teach. They had, they had seen his miracles. They had listened to his predictions about going to the cross. They were probably there when he died. They maybe even felt the earth shake as he gasped his last breath. They heard those women who came in and talked about his resurrection, thought it was an idle tale. So they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't put two and two together. They couldn't understand. And we can't, we can't believe in Jesus. We can't see him or receive his loving rule in our lives, not left to ourselves. It's what Jesus says when he says, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Our human minds and our human hearts, apart from the grace of God, can't figure God out, can't understand the gospel. Beyond an honest assessment alone, it won't do it. Grievous loss won't do it. It'll just make you bitter. God has to intervene and to make us see spiritually. We can't straighten out our souls. And we can't convince our minds that the gospel is true. Jesus must, and he does. He does. He doesn't do it with everyone. He only did it with these two here in this passage. He doesn't do it with everyone in our world. And why? I don't know. But I do know that he has revealed himself to you, even this morning, to us. Because he's doing here, and he's done here, exactly what he does in this passage. Here, he, he breaks open the scriptures, and then he breaks open the bread, which is also his body, that our hearts might be broken open because he is the broken open one, the one who is broken open on the cross, that the very life of God might be poured into our very hearts and our lives. He breaks open everything that we might believe. And so do you believe? Do you recognize him? Most of you don't know the name Wade Gillum. His ashes are in our columbarium though. And he became a church member here at All Saints a week or so before he died, seven years ago now. 
And Wade grew up in the church, but like many, he was able to recognize Jesus less and less over the years. But then, when he was a little bit older than me, even now, seven years ago, he, or eight and a half years ago now, he was diagnosed with late-stage bile duct cancer. And I met him on the sidelines of a middle school basketball game. And the moment that I saw him, I could tell that he was sick. Uh, But we didn't share our secrets there on the sidelines. He didn't tell me that he had cancer. I didn't tell him I was a pastor. And we talked and we connected, but we kept our secrets. And then our oldest son, Jake, who was playing, went with his son to their house after the game. And it was Saturday night. And Alyssa went over to pick up Jake later in the evening. And she was gone for hours. And I knew it was happening. I knew that secrets were being shared and that she was finding out that he had cancer and that she was telling him that I was a pastor. And she came home and she told me what I already figured, which was that he had cancer and that they would be at church the next morning. And they were. And then Wade died 15 months later as a Christian who believed in the resurrection and who could recognize Jesus with him and near to him beyond the honest assessment of his struggles with doubt and beyond the undeniable loss that cancer was, Wade could recognize that a divine passive was operative in his life, that God himself had drawn near, that Jesus was present to him and acting upon him and changing him and redeeming him. And so where is the divine passive operative in your life that you haven't seen, that you haven't named, Look for it, seek to see it, recognize the resurrected Lord who is near to you and at work in your life and even help others to see it as well in and through you. Do everything with others that Jesus does here. Did you notice what he does? Very simply, he moves toward others who can't see. He enters into their conversation. He redirects their conversation through the scriptures, to himself. And finally, he shows them through the personal and intimate act of a meal, who he is, all that he's done, and that he is near. As Christians, this is what we do now. We're to do with our culture what Jesus does here with these two travelers. To use Tim Keller's metaphor, we're to build porches and to invite people up out of the street, into our lives, into relationship and conversation with us, ultimately leading them to him. In order for that to happen, you must be acted upon. To be a Christian, you must be acted upon by God. And then you will be acted through. To look for the divine passive in your life. It is there. Believe in Christ. Be used by him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, even now in these moments, that through the preaching of your word and the breaking of bread, that you would open the eyes of our faith this morning, that we may see him, that your son, Jesus, our Lord, in all his redeeming and life-giving work. For we pray in his name, amen.